Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's just gone two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Time for this week's edition of the program about all things wet and salty. We are called Radio Marinara and my name is Bron Burton. And I'm Cade Mills. Hi, Cade. A little bit foggy today. Yeah. For multiple reasons. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> no, part of it's, it's just the weather, to be honest. Um, there's been a bit of that around lately. It's, it's kind of nice unless you're trying to go for a surf and you can't see the waves. Which occurred to me a couple of times because the last of the couple f- of weeks. Because of the fog? Yeah. Right. It's really hard to check it from the car park. And then once you're out amongst it, it's not until they're breaking on your head that you can kind of see them every now and then. So, you know, I feel for those that are down there trying to get a wave at the moment or trying to check it out. We'll um, actually find out later. Simon Brannigan's down the coast and we'll be chatting to him and we'll find out what the conditions are like down that way. Maybe yeah. even get an impromptu surf report as well. Yeah, good one. We yeah. should. We'll get an impromptu dive report too. Uh, from somebody else, but I'll talk about that in a sec. Oh, yeah, I've jumped ahead, sorry. No, 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 it's all good, <laughs> it's all good. But, yeah, dive conditions are supposed to be magnificent at the moment, but we'll talk about that in a sec, as long as you can handle the cold. That's all right, it's yeah. all about layers these days. Just think of what people were diving in 20 years ago, and, like, it makes you feel warm straight away. <laughs> That's all <laughs> you need free. to do. Yeah. Um, thank you, Tim, very much for Vital Bits, and uh, thank you very much, Andrew, for Soulful Bits, profiling Kutcher Edwards, uh, today, which was wonderful, um, and uh, we're going to be playing a track from Kutcher Edwards' new album and uh, Triple R's album of the week uh, in a little while. And thanks, Andrew, and thank you also to Edith for things to do today. We were having a little bit of a chuckle throughout that. <laughs> thanks, Edith. It's, it's, it's always it's a not the Harry Potter Center. <laughs> no, it's not the Harry Potter Center. <laughs> but there'll probably be one soon enough. Don't yep. you worry. Yeah, indeed. So yes, you can catch Tim next weekend, Saturday and Sunday, six till nine. Aren't we so lucky? Uh, and I mean that absolutely honestly. Yes, I, yes. it was very genuine, Brian. It, I, I hope it sounded Tom genuine because it, it, it Tom, was. Tim took it that way too. Oh, good, excellent. Yeah. Um, big program as always. We are going to be catching up with Rex Hunter, uh, our maritime archaeologist. He's going to be talking to us about a small catch called the Water Witch, which was lost off Red Bluff in 1870, with two lives lost, and um, it's never been found. And, ah. Mm, so Rex and his team of underwater sleuths have been looking for it. So he's going to talk to us about the Water Witch and, and their quest since 2009. So 11 years they've been looking for it. And I imagine Red Bluff's probably not an easy spot to get into to have a look around, yeah. which would be part of the problem there too. For sure. So looking forward to talking to Rex about that. We're then going to speak with AJ Morton for a few different things. The dive report I mentioned just before. Checking on the spider crabs. It's pretty close to kind of... You know, I think we almost need to call this one, but we'll find out whether there have been any sightings during the last week. And we're also going to spend a bit of time talking about the news of the week, which is Flinders Pier. Yes, it did made front page of the age earlier in the week. Went from being a, a, an issue that we've sort of mentioned a couple of times in passing as something to keep an eye on and then boom. So, well, yeah. That's what happens when David Attenborough... Well, lends his name to something. That's right. So we're going to talk about that and um, not not uh, solve the world on it, but ask a few questions and, and explore a few ideas on this one. So we'll get to that. Um, then you mentioned Simon Brennigan. Yeah, so Simon from the Nature Conservancy, we had him on oh, probably a couple of years ago now and they just started building some uh, shellfish reefs in Port Phillip Bay. So it's gone 
gangbusters. Um, $20 million has been announced federally, that was a while ago, to build reefs around the country. And we're going to catch up with Simon and sort of see what that means for reef building, how many reefs can be built, what sort of work, um, some of the flow-on effects too, because it does actually, it's quite important for jobs. And then like honing, work our way into Victoria and then finally work our way into uh, Port Phillip Bay because there's been a lot going on in Port Phillip Bay that we haven't actually sort of spoken about. So we'll get an idea of the area that's been covered there. Fantastic. Can't wait. It will be great, yep. yes. And then to close the show, Jeff Maynard's in uh, to present not sequels. Soundwave sequels saves the world has been his theme for 2021. But he says, forget sequels. We've got the worst ever equal. <laughs> E-A-Q-U-E-L. I don't know what that means. We'll find out. And uh, he says, the shark movie that copied another. Get ready for Jaws, the Delta variant. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. Jaws, the Delta Always. variant means. So, big show. Uh, let's have a little peruse of today's weather forecast. Well, as I mentioned earlier, it's foggy, but once this burns off, it's going to be a nice sunny day, so get amongst it. And I did see you've got until 5.15 when the sun sets, so you've got plenty of time to get out there. So I hope you're out there making the most of it. The rest of the week's pretty stable, really. So we've got um, anywhere between 15 to 14 degrees during the week, um, you know, Lows of about 8, 9, 10 degrees. A few showers here and there, but some pretty stable weather. So, you know, when the sun's shining, get out there. It's absolutely gorgeous at the moment. It's mm. sort of it's more like May weather is what I feel with this lack of wind, these really light winds, which is great for diving and great for surfing too. So if you've got the opportunity and guaranteed it's going to be good weather once the kids go back to school. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, yes, nice and calm. And Oh, sorry. And I forgot the tides, Bron. Oh, that's all right. Better and get to of, the tides. And, and I saw it was going to get up to 17 sometime. It is going to be 17 on Thursday, yeah. it says. Yeah, with a shower or two. Um, so if you are looking at heading out on the water, it's at Port Phillip Heads, 12.50 is the high tide um, and 7.39 tonight is the low tide. So if you're waiting for that, take a torch. Probably a good idea. I have a uh, weather report from Antarctica. Thank you, Cliff Davis from Casey Station. He says, good morning. It's not too cold outside today. One of the days last week we got a high of minus two degrees. We need to be a little more grateful for our... Um... Yeah, we do. Well, it's good. It puts everything in perspective after you hear my weather report. Yeah. Uh, Casey Station weather. This was at uh, 5 a.m., I think it was. Uh, four knot south to south westerly. Um, and uh, I can't read this. It's because of my eyes. It's not you, Cliff. Air temperature minus 10.5, wind chill factor to minus 14.8, humidity 76% and um, very nice looking aurora forecast. We'll post that on our Facebook page. And then he's also put a, a, a picture of him holding a weather balloon. It says, takes a bit of effort to launch weather balloon when winds are blowing. It was gusting over 60 knots when he took this picture wow. of Cliff holding a weather balloon. Spectacular photos. Thank you, Cliff. We're going to post those on our Facebook page as well. Magnificent. Yeah, I think the winds are the thing that do my head in down there. Like, 60 knots. I can be cold, but the wind, that's the one that cuts through you. Yeah. Amazing. So we've got a little bit of news here um, that's opposite climate, basically, is that so there's a team of Museum Victoria scientists are going to be spending the next 45 days on the CSIRO's RV investigator out at sea in the Indian Ocean. They're going to be exploring around the Christmas and Cocos Keeling, Cocos Keeling Islands. Um, and there's a whole lot of seamounts out there. There's an incredible amount. There's a great story on the museum's webpage and you can actually see a map and they'll show you sort of the area that they're planning on heading. It looks phenomenal. And these are seamounts that were formed like over 100 million years ago. So this stuff's just been sitting there 
waiting for them to come along and sample it and see what's there. So Tim O'Hara, friend of the show, Di Bray is going to be there as well, Tiffany C, Melanie McKenzie, Nish Nazir, and Rob French is a digital storyteller. So I'm guessing Rob's going to be the one that's um, going to keep us posted with what's going on there. All the others have social media sort of profiles that you can follow and you can check that out on the Museum Victoria webpage. And then there's also Martin Goman. Who, oh. He's going, but he doesn't have any social media presence. So <laughs> it was kind of like the last person at the end. Uh, so jump onto the Museum Victoria and keep an eye on that because they will be posting stories the whole way. They're launching out of, out of Perth, then 45 days of chugging around the Indian Ocean and coming back in at Darwin. So, And it won't be a luxury cruise. They will be working night and day, night and day the whole time they're there. They'll be exhausted. I remember last time we spoke with Tim uh, O'Hara about this and he was saying that they, they have to – they take their shifts wherever yeah. they can get them and it might be in the middle of the night. They're, they're working 24-7 um, and they're scientists. They, they get what they get. Well, it's such a rare chance to get out to these places that they have to just keep ticking over, keep samples moving, keep sampling. And the thing is they're sampling so far down that these things take so long just to reach the surface. So once they do, they have to basically throw it back in and away they go again. Yeah. So, yeah, they'll be exhausted, but it'd be good to catch up with them when they get back and have a good nap and we'll get them on the show and That'd talk about what they found because we had the blobfish, um, I think the penis worm might have come out of the last expedition. <laughs> there's been some really interesting stuff. Well, and there's still papers being written yeah. um, based on the last expedition and some of the stuff that they're finding is extraordinary it's it's really groundbreaking so we should, maybe we should try and get a, a live cross out there i think we did that last time as well well we'll follow that one up see if we can get them on board yep nice it is 9 15 you're listening to radio marinara on three triple r without further ado we're going to welcome via skype rex hunter good morning rex oh good morning Braun. how are you yeah good thanks how are you yeah good yeah really good now, the first question I have to ask you is um, we, were, we were chatting yesterday about the fact that you weren't able to come back into Triple R Studios yet, um, just with uh, things being as they are. And, uh, well, it's probably that intervention order you have against me. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Um, and uh, you mentioned you were going to be wearing your pirate pyjamas. <laughs> Well, second best thing, I've got Jane's uh, Cornish fisherman's jumper that she never met. Oh, I'm very nice. That. Very nice. We can't see you, and I know you can probably see Kent right now. Yes, yes, you can. Excellent. All right, let's get into it. The Water Witch. Tell us about the Water Witch. Well, uh, it was a little, um, it was a little bay trader. So uh, before we had man with the van, we had little um, catches and schooners that would trade around Port Phillip Bay, you know, delivering goods all over the place because uh, there was basically no road infrastructure um, in the early days, you know, right up until sort of 1850s, 60s, even 70s. So um, we needed a, a system to get produce to and from and around the bay. So um, little little sail traders, catchers, schooners, cutters, and that type of rig would uh, operate you know, to Geelong, the Heads, Frankston, Mornington. Imagine all these little places or all little ports. And so it was a vessel called the Water Witch, and that was built at Melbourne in 1851. So it was only small. It was only a... It was rated 22 tonnes, um, so it's like 40, 40 feet by 12 by 6.5 feet. So just just a small little small guy, like size of a big container. Um, and that uh, yeah, that would lighter goods around Melbourne, uh, and then you know head to Geelong and pick pick up something or deliver something, come back and then and then move down the head. So it was just they're constantly on the move. So eventually. It went through a few owners and got involved in 
the firewood trade, and a guy called William Paul bought it. So William Paul was, um, I think, he had a, a small family, and uh, so he, and the family virtually lived on this boat, and they traded up and down the bay. So he was, he went to Frankston to get some firewood because um, they catch shea because shea is a very good in high demand by, by bakers in Melbourne because it burnt right down to nothing. So he was coming back with um, firewood from Frankston in uh, sort of late December 1870, and the squall came through, capsized, and the vessel sank. So. William Paul and his 13-year-old son drowned. The bodies were never found, and the vessel, the vessel was actually located by a steamer travelling up from um, up from Mornington. It was on that on that run there, and I uh, saw a uh, little boat tied to something floating straight out from um, Red Bluff at Sandingham, and so they uh, took took some bearings and that, and then came back to Melbourne, back to Melbourne, and. Eventually, worked out it was a, a vessel called the Waterwitch, um, and then two various, various went through a number of court cases, and the, the owner was supposed to remove the wreck because it was a ha considered a hazard, um, and then from there it just disappeared from the papers. So, uh, but this uh, this story sort of reads like a Greek tragedy more than a, just a plain old shipwreck, because the uh, as I said, William Paul was the owner and his wife. Had been locked up in the mental institution. Uh, there was two other kids. There was a, a daughter who was about five, and there was a young son who was about seven. And they, their auntie, their only living relative, was blind and couldn't look after them. And the father, father and brother died, and so they were sent off to work, workhouses in Melbourne. And that's virtually the last anybody ever heard of these poor little kiddies. So um, it's a real, really, it's a real tragedy, but a really, really interesting story. So. I've had interest in this vessel for, oh, you know, God, over half my life, I suppose. And um, I started looking for her in about 2010. So I've made about 18 trips out so far, just towing side scan and testing sites. Like, you know, you find something that looks looks like a shipwreck and dive it and find it's not a shipwreck, it's just a lump of concrete or something on the bottom. So uh, I was out again recently and um, got another target on the sonar, but I haven't been back to, to dive it yet. So it's uh, a work in, in motion at, at the moment. So, it's, but um, it, it, it will be a really, really fascinating project when hopefully got, it is the site and we, we get to dive it. I got two questions for you, Rex. One, is this a family member? You seem to know so much um, <laughs> and you've been so involved in it. And then, so that's the first one. Which, by now. Yeah, okay, so you feel like you're related. It's, it's a good feeling. Uh, the other is when you say you go out looking and you've got your side scan sonar, like by the sounds of it, it was probably in shallow water. How effective is your side scan in that sort of shallow water areas where you're looking? Because I know it sort of uh, casts a shadow, so it, the deeper, yeah, the well, easier. You're looking, you're generally looking for something bright that will come up bright because there'll be a, a strong reflection off it. And there should be a shadow cast on the other side, so it, they work quite well. You can, the ones I usually run uh, hang off the end of about you know 50 meters of uh, cable, so the closer they are to the bottom, the, the better the imagery. Because through the water column, you lose, lose a lot of um, a lot of the, a lot of the image just through you know water and sediments and all that just reflect and distort signals. So I, generally, I, I tow a side scan behind the boat. 
So yeah. Yeah, and what's likely what's likely to be left of this boat? Obviously not the firewood. I'm assuming that's probably yeah. gone. Well, what what bits are likely to still sort of be left behind after all this time? Well, if if you can remember back to the bad old days of scalping, that was in that scalping area. So skull and dredge would have ploughed it through, virtually the same as the uh, Tommy Dodd we found early on in the, in the year, where the, the top half had just been ploughed clean away by skull dredges, and just the bottom, virtually the bottom to the keelson remained. So you know maybe maybe 30, 40 centimetres that hull would be would be left. I would imagine that would be about it. Rex, you were saying that you picked up a, a, a blip or a target on your sonar. What did that look like? What, is that sort of something that's giving you some hope that you, you, you're starting to hone in on where it is? Well, yeah, it's, um, it's within a you know, few hundred metres of where it was supposed to have sunk. Uh, it's, this target is about five, six metres long, it appears to be at least. So it's because um, a, a lot of them might be buried as well. So. It looks, looks, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, don't chickens before they hatch, but it looks reasonably positive. So, what's your plan to go back out there and, and have another look? Because did you say you've been out there yeah. eighteen times already? <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah, a, a man should work for a living, shouldn't he? <laughs> well, he's fantastic. Um, and and you're planning on going out there again, obviously. Yeah, yeah. When we uh, get a break in the weather, because the weather for the next sort of oh, a week or more is looking really, really rotten, like. Yeah, strong northlies, big big westlies, twenty knot westlies. It's just not worth the effort going out in that those conditions. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, Rex, before we let you go, is uh, we had um, Andrew Gaynor reached out to us after you were on the program last time, and wanted to um, make some comment. I'm trying to find my notes. Here we go. Um, uh, he, he wanted to thank uh, your, you for the segment that you were talking about, the hulks at Williamstown. And, uh-huh. yeah, and um, he let us know that he's curating a major exhibition for Bayside City Council. Now, it opened yesterday and I went and had a look at it and um, uh, it's uh, incredible, surveying 160 years, or it might be 180, I can't quite read from my type here, um, years of art featuring or made within the boundaries of Bayside, which is Brighton, Morris, and Sandringham. And uh, I can only encourage everybody to get along to that. I'm hoping to have Andrew on the program next week to talk more about it. The exhibition's called Bayside Portrait of a Place. And just with some of the um, the history to this particular wreck, the water which you were talking about, Rex, and I've, yeah. just, I've got the, uh, the, the catalogue, the program. I don't know what we call these things in Art World. What do we call them, Cade? <laughs> The book. The it book. looks like a book. It's, it's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. It, it's basically got um, a story and an image, um, a print of everything that's within this exhibition. But um, some of the paintings, of course, by the Heidelberg School feature in the exhibition and also in the book. Um, one book that I'm looking at at the moment, Tom Roberts' um, Mentone in 1889, which, of course, is only, you know, within a very short time period of when this wreck went down. And we know that there are heaps of other wrecks that were... Um, yes. Well, boats that went down during that time as well. So, message from uh, Andrew to thank you, Rex, but also, uh, yeah, I can, I think you would love this exhibition. Yeah, yes, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, there's some modern modern work in there as well. It, it sort of covers everything. It's it's amazing. I yeah, totally encourage everyone to get down there and and have a look. It will um, it will uh, be on for the next nine weeks. 
and um, just thought it was appropriate that I mention it right now. There's also a portrait of place curators talk coming up on Saturday 31st of July. So that's in a couple of weeks' time at Bayside Gallery. And you can join Andrew for an exclusive insight into the inspiration and stories behind the latest exhibition. So we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page, but hopefully we'll uh, have Andrew on the show in the next week. But, yeah, this all came about because of your segment, Rex. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got I've inspired someone anyway. I think you've inspired many people. Um, thanks so much, Rex. We'll catch up with you in a few weeks' time. And uh, any any clues on what you'll be speaking about next time? Well, yeah, uh, I'll just throw a few few ideas up there, whatever hits the floor first. I'll talk about the space. <laughs> Love that method. Um, <laughs> it may work. Right. Water temperature is 11.4 degrees too, so... Put your dry suit on when you're in the water. <laughs> we were talking about that before, weren't we, Kate? Yeah, we were. Thanks for the advice, Rex. I'm guessing you're going to wait for the water to warm up before you go and find that blip? Oh, no. No, no. Dive all year round. Of course. Winter's the best time. The clearest. That's beautiful. it. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thanks, Rex. We'll catch you okay, soon. Thanks. See okay, you guys. Bye. bye. Rex Hunter there, our maritime archaeologist. Welcoming back to Triple R. It's been a little while. AJ Morton. Good morning, AJ. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me back. Good oh. to hear from you, AJ. It's it's our pleasure to have you back, AJ. Let's uh, let's let's start with a quick dive report. Um, Rex mentioned it's eleven degrees in the water at the moment. Uh, any any good tips for people who want to get out there and dive today? Um, great tips. Today's a really good day to try and get out before our weather kind of turns a little bit wind-wise during the week. Um, this weekend's been amazing. You've probably seen some photos floating about how calm the bay's been, especially the dive boats and that. Um, <clears throat> but as you can imagine, it's a bit cold. So but what a lot of people don't realise is the wool thermals that you usually use for hiking and going to the snow, per se, you can actually wear underneath your wetsuit. Natural fibres, when wet, will also help keep warm. So those who want to brave the cold, there are options, including a hot water bottle afterwards. <laughs> well, it's the Melbourne way, isn't it? Just layer up and you'll get through it. Oh, totally, totally. I've had explorer socks inside my dive booties plenty of times. <laughs> Very good. And, yeah, Jackie Younger, I saw, posted some photos. Um, she was down at Cape Shank yesterday doing some whale watching and the viz just from over, you know, from some of the photos she posted was amazing. Looks- yeah, definitely whale season. Uh, so for those who are going down the coast, don't forget to uh, pick up a good set of binoculars and uh, you won't be disappointed. Yeah, excellent. Uh, all right. Um, we also wanted to get a quick update on what's happening with spider crabs. When we caught up with Jackie a couple of weeks ago, we kind of almost called it that um, by by mid to late July, if they haven't turned up, they're probably not going to turn up. We know there's been some small aggregations out there in various places. Has anything changed in the last couple of weeks? Pretty much no. And there's some good things and bad things about that. The good things is, well, we didn't have another decimation event this year of the population, which is good. Uh, the bad things are, as well, it starts to ask questions about whether or not, you know, with those... Yeah, activities have impacted our population in Port Phillip Bay. So we've, how do we really know that, you know? So the next few years and the flow-on effect as well as that uh, protein loss in our Port Phillip Bay ecosystem will become evident. Um, but for the moment now, we can call the season pretty much done and dusted. Like you said, there's been some small um, sightings of aggregations and things like that and people commenting saying, oh, the crabs are here, but they just haven't come to the piers. Um there may be some sightings, but those sightings have been very small in numbers. Usually when they aggregate, we're aggregating in, you know, not just tens or hundreds. There's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of them. So there's been various piles over the years out in the depths as well. But, you know, we're talking 
you know, massive mounds and pyramids of crabs, not just a few 50 here and a, you know, and 50 or 100 over there. So overall, massive number depletion this year. Definitely something we need to keep an eye on. And, uh, and I guess the big question for that is why and uh, a number of different possibilities. So let's, uh, let's keep an eye on that, I suppose, and, and ask some questions in the weeks ahead, assuming that they're not yeah. going to turn up. Yeah, this is... Exactly this, right. Yeah. Now, let's uh, get on to Flinders Pier. Um, it has been the news of the week. We mentioned it. It's, a few weeks ago, we were approached um, by a group called the Flinders Community Association, and they just wanted to send us a message about plans to, and their words were, to demolish Flinders Pier. And we mentioned it in passing uh, at the time. This was, I think, back in April, and then sort of things seemed to go quiet. And we, we mentioned at the time it would be something we'd keep an eye on. And then suddenly this week... Uh, it's on the front page of the age. There's there's stories on the ABC News. Uh, I saw um, last night actually on um, when uh, when I was channel surfing through one of the commercial news networks. It, it popped up there as well. So it's uh, it's kind of gone gangbusters in the last week. And we just sort of we're going to explore this one over the next few weeks to really see what's going on here. But something that we wanted to talk about um, really to start with. Um, Let's start with the group themselves, the Flinders Community Association. I just wanted to ask both of you, um, so Kate and AJ, whether this is a group that you're familiar with because you're both incredibly connected um, through all of the various community networks around Mornington Peninsula and particularly around Western Port as well. Um, what, what do we know about the Flinders Community Association? I'll let AJ go first on this one. Um, thanks, Kate. <laughs> well, because basically I'll say what he said. <laughs> I, I, need to, I, I, need to, I need to preface this by saying that we did actually um, extend uh, an invite to them to talk to us a bit on the show and we didn't hear back from them at the time. So we'll, we'll do that again. Keep following up. Yeah, yep. we'll keep following that up. But um, who, wants, who wants to go first? Well, I, I count a little bit, I guess, based on what I know. The, the Flinders Village Group or the, the Community Association and whatnot down there basically is... All the residents and, and interested parties down there kind of looking out for, for that area. Um, there's a, like an official group and whatnot, and they're kind of been like that residential representative body, I guess. That's as far as the structure of it I'm aware of. But they're obviously advocating uh, for their, I guess, community reasons to keep the pier um, intact and have it repaired and whatnot. Um, and, Kate, you're probably a hell of a lot more over the exact information, uh, the details about the demolishment and whatnot of the pier. But from what I understand, like, removing 180 metres of the pier equates to something just over 70% of the pier will be removed. And there's obviously various advocating groups of, you know, putting their hand up and saying, whoa, 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 what about this, what about this, what about this? And obviously our wonderful sea dragons are down there as well, so there's obviously those impacts. There's a lot of history and a lot of um, community love and tourist love for that pier. It's been there, I think, 157 years. Is that right, Kate? So there has been a pier in that position for 157 years. The pier that is there has undergone multiple makeovers. It's had some Botox and some silicon work <laughs> um, to make it look as, as well as it does now with the exception of, and I don't think it's 180 metres that's been replaced. I think it's only something like 80 metres. So it's from the shore to where the um, new concrete pier is. The end section is going to remain in place on that one. So as far as the groups go, I hadn't heard of the group, but um, given that 
they don't tend to be involved in in-water things. That's not really a surprise. Um, and I, like, to be honest, I think their main concern has been the aesthetics and the pier remaining in place, the timber pier ma- remaining in place. And when it comes to the weedy sea dragon sort of side of it, um, you know, weedy sea dragons were around long before the piers were being created at these places where people see them. And the I guess one of the issues that hasn't been addressed with this is that whether you restore or remove the pier, there's going to be disturbance to the pylons. So if any restoration work is going to require pylons to be cleared. Like you're not going to be able to leave all the habitat and that on the pylons. It's going to require, and it's going to require people in the water disturbing the bottom. Any removal work is also going to be disturbing as well because you're going to be removing the habitat that's on the pier, pylons itself, which is not habitat for weedy sea dragons per se. So they're found in the seagrass around the area. They might congregate around the pier and you might see them commonly at the pier. But is that just because that's where the divers are or is it because that is some a place that they actually spend a lot of time? We don't really know and we've been working to try and figure that one out. So there's yeah, a few things... Well. Yeah, so there's a few things that have been overlooked, I think, in the argument with this that just need to be brought into light, I think, and we just need to have a um, broader discussion around it. And I think parks need to be brought in for this discussion to sort of say all right this is what we're planning on doing and this is why so they've had ecology assessments on it Uh, one of the things that has come out of it is by actually removing that pier you will be opening up the seabed to more light which means that you're potentially going to get more seagrass in that area which is the preferred habitat of weedy sea dragons so that hasn't been covered in this argument and so there's a few things that we just need to i guess get more clarification around and i think someone like john o'rudge who we've had on the show as a commercial diver would be a good person to talk to as far as what's the amount of disturbance that happens in the bottom and i think the one thing that is forgotten with this is that weedy sea dragons can swim so they do have that potential to move away from disturbance and given that the concrete pier was only recently created um, there would have been a lot of disturbance when that pier was being created and the weedy sea dragons are still there so there's a few things like that that have been overlooked yeah and the point that you make too kate about um the the age of the pier i think is a really important one because that's one thing i've seen said repeatedly is the age of the pier um, what I would encourage everybody, because we'll have to move on in a second, but what we'll, we'll try and get someone from Parks Victoria on the program next week. I'd really like to talk to Jono as well because yep. he'll be able to speak to the mechanics of... Well, just what happens in the water because that's where the yep. disturbance is going to happen is in the water and he's the guy that does that. So yep. he would know which one's going to be more destructive or are they both going to be equally. Yep. Um, in the meantime, if people want to go and do a little bit of background reading before we have someone from Parks on next week... Go to the Parks Victoria website because they're they're quite clear in terms of what's on that website, what the current situation is, what it is that needs to be done. There's an FAQ section as well, um, frequently asked questions. Um, You can go and check some of these uh, those questions out and and the answers to them. Uh, I think it's really worth having a look and and just having a little pause on this one because my my personal reaction to this was emotive, just like it has been for so many other people as well. But I think taking a step back and looking at a few facts here is really really important at this point in time. It's true, and the piers don't last forever. Each of the piers that are built around the bay have a lifespan, right? And we've had Port Arlington Pier, I believe, replaced, you know, within the last five or so years. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Rye Pier's getting replaced this summer, or obviously having some major works uh, being done on it. Um, and so Flinders isn't really exempt from the typical maintenance and, uh, you know, and the end of life, you know, which is can't pretend it doesn't, uh, it can last forever, you know what I mean? So these sort of works happen. And I remember having a chat with one of Parks Fix Marine Engineers a few years ago about this, um, these sort of processes and, and disturbances. And, um, 
because we don't have a lot of, you know, typically endangered or very sensitive habitat um, on our coastlines uh, in general, a lot of it recovers quickly. And you remember back from op sponge days, uh, <laughs> Kate, um, we, you know, people want to really do what they can to kind of conserve that habitat. So parks generally really do a great job. They have genuine concern for the environment. So it would be great to hear from them uh, on your show and have a chat to them about that study and all that sort of jazz, just to kind of put some more answers out there for people. Um, but at the same time, there might be some options there to do other things as well, like potentially put in some more artificial reefs and things like that around the pier so that the piers themselves don't contain all the habitat. So when works get done, um, the the impact on the, the local environment is less. So you know, there are things that we can potentially you know do as well to I think, offset it. If that I, makes think, sense. I think one thing we can all agree on is that nobody wants the sea dragons to be damaged through That's this the process. Main one, yes. And um, and uh, if we can all agree on that, then at least we have a starting point. Hey, thanks, AJ. We have to move on. We've got Simon Brannigan waiting for us. But um, always yeah, speaking a... about reefs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> always a pleasure to speak with you. We'll catch up with you again soon. Yeah, totally, guys. Thanks for the chat. Cheers. Thanks. See you. AJ Morton there. So much to talk about, and uh, we will continue to do that in the weeks ahead. Hopefully next week we'll continue this one on. 9.44, you're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. And I'm delighted to welcome back to the good ship Marinara, Simon Brannigan from the Nature Conservancy. Simon is the maker of reefs, the restorer of the seafloor fauna and flora. Uh, for Eastern Australia. I'm sure he has a more formal job title than that, but it is not as colourful as that introduction. How are you today, Simon? Is that fog burnt off down your way? Uh, g'day, Cade and Bron. Very excited to be back on. Yeah, the, the fog is starting to burn off and the blue sky is starting to, starting to emerge, which is, which is lovely. Oh, beautiful. And for those that don't know, Simon is based down at Ocean Grove, so if you're on your way to the beach, there's some good news for you. Now, look, we're going to start off big with... No, no, of... it's terrible. It's, it's, it's really terrible. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think there's actually much surf today, but we've got to move nah. on because we're running short of time. We're discussing things far too big. So, look... I've mentioned you had, we had you on a while back talking about shellfish reef restoration in Port Phillip Bay. And at the time, there were sort of two reefs, one off Point Wilson and one off St Kilda. What's, what's going on now in Port Phillip Bay? Where are we at? Yeah, sure. So we, um, the project started in 2016. There was a pilot project uh, sort of largely led by the Victorian Fisheries Authority and University of Melbourne. And since then, um, with those partners also, we've restored reefs in 2017, 18, 2020, and more reefs coming up. So we've restored six hectares of reefs over four sites. So uh, Margaret's Reef in St Kilda. Sorry, uh, Simon, when you say six hectares, how many MCGs is that? Uh, it's, we're looking at about two and a half, three MCGs. Well worth. done. But, I mean, no, question without warning that one. But. It, it's, um, it's sort of, you know, it's patch reefs over a hectare footprint. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's six hectares of reefs in the water. And coming up in 2021 as part of our nationwide reef builder initiative, we have funding to build another five hectares at, at these four sites. So there's Wilson Spit. In Outer Geelong Harbour, Nine Foot Bank, which is sort of on the border of Cryo Bay and Outer Geelong Harbour, and also at Dramata. Now, I'll get on to how people can find out more about that at the end of the interview. And you just mentioned the Reef Builder um, project. So that's, well, from what I know, it's $20 million were sort of allocated to you know, restoring shellfish reefs around the country. How many shellfish reefs do you get for $20 million and where are you at with that? Uh, it's a very, very good question. So 
so the Nature Conservancy is working with the Australian government on Reef Builder. Um, so we have funding to build reefs in 13 sites throughout Australia and there's six sites on the east coast. Some of them are existing sites like Port Phillip Bay and we have new sites such, in, such as in Gippsland Lakes and also down in the Derwent and the Outer Channel, channel in, in Tasmania. Um, so, yeah, so listen, we are, some sites are, are quite mature, like Port Phillip Bay, so we're adding to the existing footprints. And um, there's new sites like Gippsland Lake, we're sort of in the sort of site selection, restoration, suitability mould at the moment. So it's part of a, a broader, ambitious plan to bring back 30% of the original extent of shellfish reefs throughout Australia. Um, which would be the, the first nation in the world to, to, to bring back a critically endangered marine ecosystem. So we've got a, a bigger goal here around 60 sites, but we're sort of kicking it off with 13 sites. And the, and the funding was allocated as part of a COVID-19 and bush recovery stimulus package. So this restoration work is, is really job-heavy, um, be it the marine construction companies or the hatcheries or the scientists that are monitoring the reefs. So, yeah, it's super, super exciting. Well, that's one of the things I, I actually wanted to talk to you about. So these flow-on benefits from it, but which you've already mentioned. So I'll skip that and I'll go back to something you mentioned. Oh, my brain has completely left me. <laughs> um, it was around well, restoring the 30% is what it was. Yes. So yes. what what's here at the moment? So you're staying restoring 30% of what was once present what have, yes. what is present or what was present before you started like embarked upon this yeah so in terms of the um the austrian gaz austrian gazi the the flat oyster reefs there's about one percent of the original extent that's left um throughout sort of the southern australia and over to, to wa and then there's about eight percent of the sydney rock oyster the the intertidal reef so the first fishery in most bays and estuaries, be it Port Phillip Bay, Western Port, Corner Inlet, was actually the, the, the harvest of, of oysters. So, yeah, so that obviously created a lot of jobs back in colonial times and uh, thousands of years before that, um, traditional owners around Port Phillip Bay and elsewhere um, sustainably harvest these reefs. Um, and they're also of sort of huge um, spiritual importance as well. But there was, a, there was an oyster rush, which decimated um, the reefs throughout these bays and estuaries. Then through the modern times, obviously there was a dredge fishery in Port Phillip Bay through the 60s, through the 90s, and also sort of catchment to coast pollution, sedimentation certainly hasn't helped with yeah. the recovery either. And that was a good point you brought up. It's not just about mussels or um, Austro-Angazi, which is the native flat oyster. There's Sydney rock oyster. When you talk shellfish reef, it's sort of a complex of all these things, and then it's the complex of all the things that live around them, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So imagine a coral reef, a three-dimensional structure that comes up from the seabed, but rather than um, coral being the dominant feature, you rather either have oysters or mussels or both. And like you said, it's also colonised by a bunch of other other species um, also. So it's a, a living, breathing, natural reef, and that's what we're working on. We're sort of bringing back sort of natural reefs in Port Phillip Bay and elsewhere, which is different to sort of artificial reefs. So we're, all the work that we're doing sort of fits within the standards and principles of sort of ecological restoration. All right. Now, I've got another half page of questions, which I'm not going to be able to get through because Bron's giving me the wind up. Now, you have an upcoming event because there's probably a lot of people listening to this just going, oh, my God, I did not realize any of this and I want to know more. How can they find out more, Simon? 
Yeah, excellent. Thanks for the question. So we have a, <laughs> we have three um, public information sessions that are coming up. The first one is going to be at the Albert Park Yachting and Angling Club. Um, the Albert Park Yachting and Angling Club are foundation members of the project have been huge supporters. So that's on July 19th. Um, between sort of 5 p.m. and 6:30 p.m., um, and it, it's essential to RSVP for that event. And if you'd like to RSVP, um, please email andrew.donlop@tnt.org. But I can provide you those details in the show notes. So the information session about what's happened today, um, some of the monitoring results, and what's happening in 2021. We do have permits for the next sort of two to three years, but we, we certainly want to bring the community along on the journey. And then we'll have also have a public information session in Germana and in Geelong. We'll let, we'll let everyone know about those dates very soon. Yep. Maybe what we might do, Simon, before between the um, your uh, Albert Park one and the Dramana and Geelong public sessions, we'll get you back on and then um, we'll make sure it's at a time where Cade can ask because I can see he has got another half page of questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> no worries yeah. at all. Thanks for joining us, Simon. And um, we'll put details of the one coming up at the Albert Park Yacht Club on our Facebook page so people can follow the link through for that. Thanks again, Simon. Enjoy your sunny day. Thanks, Cade. See you, bro. Thanks. See you soon, Simon. 9.52, uh, that was Simon Brannigan um, from it, the Nature Conservancy. It was Simon Brannigan yeah. from the Nature Conservancy. Now, a couple of quick station. No, we're not. We're going to do a little sting. No. A couple of stings just while we... No, no we're not. Flagged, we're going to go straight to Jeff. I flagged that there was something I wanted to bring up with the Flinders Pier and the Weedy Sea Dragons is... One of the most crucial things around this is that the weedy sea dragon breeding period is during sort of September to January. So any works that need to be done have to keep that in mind. So that's just one of those important things. Now over oh, to cool. Jeff. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Jeff, are you there? Oh, have we lost him after all he's, that? It looks like he's having a drink. He is. Jeff, are you there? Have we got you there? Yes, you have. Yay. Oh, excellent. I can't see you. So um, oh. so thanks for that, Kate. All right. Yes, um, a bit of a bumpy landing into your segment this week. But uh, yes, uh, equals. Let's start with that. What is an equal and why have we diverted away from sequels? Well, I, I thought 2021 was going to be a sort of a bad sequel to 2020. Uh, and so I started doing uh, movie sequels like Jaws 2 and 3 and 4, etc. Um but 2021, it feels like it's sort of the same but weirdly different to 2020. So I looked for a movie that was kind of a bad equal or a, a sort of a, a just a weird clone of 2021. And I came up with a 1981 Italian movie called The Last Shark. And it's basically a shark movie that's meant to be like Jaws but weirdly different. Now, the first thing you have to do in a, a, a Jaws movie is you have to find somebody or not find somebody eaten by a shark to think, oh, there's a shark around here somewhere. Um, so the first thing we do is we find um, uh, there's a missing windsurfer, but we find his windsurfing board and it's been bitten in two. So just have a listen to this uh, track number one and see if you can get any sort of, um, uh, see if Jaws, you know, the movie resonates in this one anywhere. Let's go, track one. I've lived here 30 years. Never been a reported shark sighting. Anything big enough to have done that since I've been here. One thing's for sure. It wasn't a floating chainsaw. Had <laughs> to be one hell of a specimen, too. Yeah, but the trouble is, once they get a free meal, once they get a taste, they tend to hang around looking for more. Well, there's still a missing half of Mike's surfboard. Maybe Mike's on it, drifting around out there. They got a windsurfer got on Saturday. I wouldn't bet on it. 
I've got a couple of questions, Jeff. Well, I've got the answers, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the other thing is bad Jaws rip-off music. They, yes. they went to a music library and sort of said, we want something scary and, and uh, all that sort of in, you know, intimidating, you know, sort of slow burn kind of way. Uh, and that's what they found, this terrible stuff. Now, there's two people in this one. Yeah, instead of having Sheriff Matt Brody, we have the author of novels who's living in this little seaside town, and his name's Peter Benton, and he writes novels. And, of course, if you remember the Jaws novel, it was written by Peter Benchley. Mm. So, anyway, we have him played by James Franciscus. And then instead of the shark hunter, Quint, we have this bad sort of Scottish accent played by uh, Vic Morrow, and he, he's the old grizzled shark hunter. Anyway, the local shark hunter and um, Peter Benton slash Benchley, um, they they start going head to head with the local official who wants to keep holding the windsurfing carnival, but uh, they're telling him there's a shark in the water and he has to cancel it. So have a listen to track two and see if you can get any Jaws, um, uh, uh, Jawsy stuff out of it. Track two. You better start thinking about that regatta bill. Couldn't it have been something else? Couldn't it have been an explosion? We all know that when Ed goes fishing, he uses grenades. I don't know what you're talking about. No explosion did this. You see any powder marks here? Look at it. Look at it and tell me a grenade did this. I don't care what did it. We're going ahead with the regatta. And there won't be any risks. It wasn't a Mako. It wasn't a tiger. There's only one shark in this whole world big enough to have caused that kind of damage. Oh, hi. It's very Jawsy, isn't it? <laughs> Dad, do you still have questions or can I get on with me, me spot? I did have one quick question. <laughs> you answered the first one about the music, although I've noticed they've jumped from a, a double bass to a cello, but anyway, that's that's probably um, oh, splitting hairs. <laughs> but the, uh, the, other, the other question I had was around, you said it was um, an Italian movie, but it's obviously, uh, is it, in, in what way was it financed? Well, it was made in Italy, right? And I'm, I, but it was just all—it's called um, Le, Le Ultimo Squalo or something. It's all <laughs> Italian, but they actually made it in English and released okay. it in America. Yeah, right. Uh, okay. So I—I I don't know. They took—they took the main actors, which was Vic Morrow and James Franciscus, over to Italy and made it all there, um, with a whole lot of bad sort of. Um, Italian actors in the background. Was it part of the? I um, know. Oh I know. I'm jumping. Uh, we've got a couple more tracks to get through. But was it at the same time as the spaghetti westerns? Is this kind of within that same era? 1981. So it's a little okay, bit later. A bit later. So yeah. it, it probably got spaghetti western thinking about it in terms of uh, cheap locations and crews and things. Um, it's probably the deal. Um, yeah, you are jumping the gun, Bron. You know, I'll, I'll <laughs> forgive you this time. Look, the third scene is the get out of the water scene. You know where the where the sheriff slash um, guy is on the beat telling he sees a fin he's got to scream at people get out of the water and the thing I love about this and and the, the shark guys out into my boat quick get out of the water uh, but they're screaming at people to do this but at the same time they're going uh, and by the way don't panic um, so just just for the sort of the COVID relations imagine instead of saying get out of the water they're they're running along screaming get out of New South Wales get out of New South Wales don't panic let's have a listen to track three. What the hell's going on with that boy? Everyone, get out of the water now! Everybody out of the water and onto the boat. Everyone, get on shore! Everyone out of the water! Out of the water! Hurry it up, boys! Get out of the 
Yeah. So get out of the water. Don't panic. Yeah, I'm um, calm. Sorry? I'm feeling calm. <laughs> um, the other big scene is the town hall meeting where all the town, you know, the local council get together and they're deciding what to do about it. And um, Quint the shark hunter or Vic Morrow, the Scottish shark hunter, um, tells them, look, this is a great white and you've got a problem and I'm going to have to go out and kill it for you. So let's have a listen to track four. want to call that shark a rumor. Just hold it there. I said hold it. I've never seen anything like it my whole life. I've hunted shark all over the world. So you have two choices. One, get out of his way. The other is to hold your ground and fire and try to kill him because you didn't have another choice. Because the great white shark, you cannot scare off. Not this animal. Especially because he's had his taste of human flesh. <laughs> it was so it was so it was actually ripped off jaws so much that universal studios uh brought a court injunction uh saying it was plagiarizing their movie and they tried to stop its distribution in america and i actually think they were successful but according to wikipedia so they actually stopped its distribution on the basis that it was too much like jaws um, so that's that's uh, the Ultimo Squalo or something, uh, The Last Shark, uh, a 1981 Italian ripoff movie. And as always, welcome, uh, Brian, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Still a work there, Jeff Maynard. Thank you so much. Can't wait for the next one. I can't either. <laughs> Jeff Maynard there. Thanks to Jeff. Thanks to Simon Brannigan, who was with us, AJ Morton and Rex Hunter earlier today. Thank you, Cade, very much. And thanks to the doctors for lending us a minute. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Kent. And thank you, Panel Beater, for that. Um, next week's program, Dr Beach Ooh. will be in the house. We'll uh, probably catch up with someone from Parks Victoria and continue this discussion about Flinders. Uh, I believe we have our cabin boy, Brett Ditchfield, in to talk about cooter boats. And Edie, very special Triple R listener, is going to talk to us about what she thinks we should do to save our sharks. Have a great Sunday. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. Thanks again for a couple of minutes there and we'll catch you next week. Bye for now. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.